I am with uh, Christine Caldwell, Ryan Kennedy, and Tara Topper from Naropa University. Hi. Hello. Hello. So we're going to be talking today about uh, contemplative body psychotherapy, which you practice and teach. Maybe a good start would be to explain what uh, contemplative body psychotherapy is. Okay. Do you want to take that, Christine? Uh, I can uh, begin that, yes. So if we want to talk about contemplative body psychotherapy, the word contemplative is uh, the first thing to look at. And I would say that if we go by the dictionary, the dictionary talks about con- contemplative as something that you like gaze attentively or you observe or you look at intently you study something very carefully and so a contemplative body psychotherapy is one that really uses what's traditionally called mindfulness and mindfulness practices to help the focus on body experience and body uh, based processing to be more nuanced uh more foregrounded and more supported by uh, one's attentional focus. And uh, we might also say by the capacity to bear witness uh, to one's uh, full-bodied experiences. And I would add to that, I love that definition and the, and the scope of what it covers. I would also add to that in contemplative practice, there is... There is or there can be um, a connection to an observer who's not necessarily the, the experiencer of the phenomenon, but a part of the self that's able to um, recognize that there's more to the experience than just the phenomenon that's happening. And so it's, it's a cultivation in the sense of, of um, an observer or a non-subjective self. So there's part of the contemplative practice that's able to hold experience phenomenologically and also a part of the self that's able to hold it more um, objectively. I think Ryan's making a good point because one of the capacities that is valued in contemplative body psych is that capacity to know that I am more than just what has happened to me. And one of the ways in which we understand healing is the capacity to completely engage with the experience, our, our somatic experience, but also to know that we have a capacity to also observe experience. Right. So, so what I'm hearing is um, there is a sense of being very much in tune with the experience, with the body process, and at the same time a sense that I am more than what is happening to me. Yeah. Yeah, I am, uh, I am both... Uh, identifying with the experience, but also I, that experience isn't me. It's something that I'm engaging with. And this, I think this is where the, it's a bit of a difficult concept for many people to grasp a hold of, and it's not necessarily a concept that we would teach a client straight away. But the contemplative practice 
very much embraces an attitude of non-dualism, that multiple realities can be happening simultaneously and, in, and, and they're not contradictory. So that the physical experience and the phenomenological experience of what's happening in and with the body is 100% accurate. At the same time, it's, there's, there's more to the picture than meets the eye. There's many layers of experience happening and the, at the gross level of experience in the body is one layer. There's a lot of subtle um, layers of experience that are also happening that extend beyond just an individual body and maybe go into a, a more transpersonal perspective. That's part of the, you know, that's also part of the contemplative practice as well, is, is learning that we're not individual separate selves that are um, isolated, but we're, we're more connected to a, a bigger body, a, a communal body or a global body that's beyond just the self. And I think that's part of the, maybe that's part of the Buddhist roots of contemplative practice at Naropa. But I think it's also part of the systemic view that, you know, a lot of therapies are moving toward today that, that, um, we're part of larger organic systems that are, that are exchanging energy with each other and informing and changing each other all the time. And part of contemplative practice is to become aware of that larger viewpoint and, and in so doing, we become more connected and actually have more compassion for um, experiences that people ha- have because things aren't one way or the other in that non-dualistic contemplative viewpoint. Right, right. So, so in other words, um, um, it's uh, any perception we have is just an entry point. There's more perceptions or more ways of looking at it, and there's also a connection to something larger. And that con- contemplative part is a slowing down in order to be able to uh, see the other perspectives as well. That's a good summary. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's true. It's uh, also about the fact that in contemplative body psychotherapy, both as your training in that and as a client uh, in that system, that you come in with a history of what we might call attentional wounds, that we have uh, all navigated some kind of experiences where when attention was turned on to us, when attention was paid to us, that attention was critical or unsafe or uh, manipulative. And so one of the meta-ideas in contemplative body psychotherapy is that you want to repair the capacity, you want to repair attentional wounds and you want to repair the capacity to pay good, strong, high-quality attention both to your inner experience, your somatic experience especially, but also to others and to the world like Ryan was saying. So it there's... Um, there's these reparative experiences that we can have when we allow our attention, for instance, to be non-judgmental, non-analytic, and just create a kind of beam of attention towards our experience that's very clear and very open. And it it's a, a tremendous way that we create safety, for instance, with clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I would also add that if we look at it through a developmental lens, that we actually um, gain a sense of our own self 
through being witnessed by someone. And so as we start to um, uh, get witnessed through the therapeutic relationship around that, that we start to internalize that sense of witnessing for ourselves. that there's actually a, uh, a way that that relationship helps, helps build an ego structure. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, and that, that's, that's a really excellent point that, that back to the non-dual idea that at Naropa, when we're thinking about the contemplative forms of body psychotherapy and how those are expressed both in training as well as in clinical environments, there's a notion of being able to, um, hold both what I would say is more of a materialistic viewpoint, or in, in more Buddhist terms, it's more of the relative world. So these are things like DSM diagnoses and systemic observations about hierarchies and families, or however it plays out from a diagnostic or assessment perspective. But in the, you know, so that view can be held, but it's not seen as some kind of literal reality, that there's more of a there's more of an absolute truth that gets played out and that is that each each being and each person is an expression of wholeness as they are and in that sense um, we're supporting that wholeness and the expression of that wholeness through the mindfulness practices and the contemplative approach of of seeing beyond or through the wounding and allowing for the intrinsic basic goodness of the individual to be expressed and what Tara's saying, I think, is is really important because it can that that viewpoint can get sometimes oversimplified or sometimes it can get um, applied in a polarized way, and I think that's a little bit dangerous because um, there are developmental things that are happening in the world of the of the materialistic growth and development of an individual or the relative world, as we'd say in in, more, in our terms. That need to be addressed. That people need to go through a developmental trajectory, and the therapist might need to do some corrective experiences and things like this, knowing that that's part of the trajectory, while still holding that non-dual absolute truth of the wholeness and the basic goodness of the individual. So there's a quality of the attention being able to oscillate back and forth between structure or or openness, between directive interventions or more spacious supportive interventions that are really acutely attuned to the unique process that's unfolding between the therapist and the client. And that takes a lot of internal um, internal witnessing of oneself and learning what's, you know, what's motivating and what's inspiring particular kinds of conceptualizations and interventions that may be coming out of a place of of a theoretical orientation that's not really rooted in a in a relational or a um, or a mindful place. So um, maybe that would be a good place to have a sense of how a session, you know, what what would a session be like um, to to give a sense of what you're talking about. Well, one thing that I that I tell students a lot, and I and apply it actually in clinical environments, is that when we're talking about contemplative body psychotherapy, you know, in a sense, we're we're also talking about things that people already know about, which is something like cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, is looking at cognition and how cognition informs behavior or action. 
well, in a way, contemplative body psychotherapy is similar to that because we're not just looking at cognition and we're looking at contemplative practice. We're looking at the generation of energy on all levels, the mind, the body, and in the heart as well. Um, so there's a there's a, a way in which contemplative body psychotherapy can have a lot of the same kind of external look as something like like um, CBT, for instance. I think the view of the therapist, though, is I'm not trying to change. I'm not trying to change you by calling your cognition something like irrational or or like thoughts that are destructive, but rather it's looking at the, you know, where are those thoughts coming from. And usually there's a version of, of contemplative practice that looks at those kind of thoughts as, as um, distortions of ego-based thinking, and when we're working on uh, letting go of that and supporting the client and accessing their intrinsic basic goodness, then, then it's, it allows them to soften and have a little more self-compassion and get past um, those kind of belief systems and structures that prevent them from from really expressing their full aliveness through and with their body. So, if I understand you correctly, uh, in some ways, a psychotherapist uh, would behave the way another psychotherapist would and uh, pay attention to what's happening uh, on a material level and level of um, observe behavior. Um, but actually not then be focusing on trying very hard to change the client, but actually observing from a sense of observing distortion of ego-based thinking and creating the space for this to, uh, to flow in a, uh, in a more uh, organic way. That's a, that's a uh, nice way to summarize what I just said. It's, it's, you know, it sounds pretty abstract, and I'm sure as most body psychotherapists know, it's hard to describe a, you know, one session that encapsulates how all sessions will look. So, you know, having a more detailed version of the application of these practices in a session might help somebody. And, and in general, I think it really starts with me as the practitioner or whoever is the practitioner that that person in this case it would be me, is able to be grounded and centered as a practitioner, not necessarily in a state of perfection, because that's not really the role of contemplative practice. The role of contemplative practice is to support and invite and, in a sense, even embrace what is. It's about not pushing anything away, and it's not about clinging on to anything that's that we're trying to obtain, where it's really about being present and accepting of each moment as it presents itself. So as a therapist doing a contemplative-based body psychotherapy session, I'm tracking what's happening with me. I'm not trying to change myself so that I'm more present or make myself into a better rendition of whatever the, the ide- ego ideal is. I'm just accepting things as they are with, with an understanding that I'm, that I'm an expression of that basic goodness. There might be things that I can do or say that would support particular things in, in more clinically relative ways. And I'm also tracking that I'm, that I'm present and in my body and awake and tracking my own um, attentional flow, my own biases. I'm aware of those things and I'm taking ownership of them from a, 
you know, ongoing, oscillating perspective. I'm not getting too focused inwardly. I'm not getting too focused outwardly. I'm not getting too focused on specific um, dynamics, and I'm not getting too lost in the general in the general territory. And my attention is able to track all of those things in an ongoing way. And I'm also letting go of. I might be aware of some conceptions or case. Um, theoretical orientations, but I'm not attaching any kind of fact to that or saying this is reality. I'm saying here are some elements of reality that's unfolding, and I don't know. So there's an element of beginner's mind that's always going along with the experience of I, I don't know, and I'm in a co-creative process with this individual exploring the territory without getting lost in the map. I'm trying to be in the territory with them, even though maps are helpful in exploring territories. So that's a lot of how a session goes, kind of holding both things simultaneously, one being the theoretical understanding of body psychotherapy, as many people have trained in and understand. The other is is a experiential exploration and not really knowing what the right, because there is not necessarily a right answer. It's a co-creative process. Mm-hmm. I, I, also, oh, I was going to say, I also think of um, the moving cycle, Christine. I don't know if you were just about to talk about that. But. Yeah, I thought that um, I think one of the important things that Ryan is saying is that uh, this type of psychotherapy is not monolithic, that there's a lot of different ways we can bring other, uh, many different modalities to it in application to it. And uh, if I were to try to tease out some of the commonalities that might occur in terms of what Ryan was saying, I would say that, for instance, you begin a session and you are opening up the session by bringing the client into the present moment. And so that would be one of the fairly common central premises is that For instance, I might ask the client, could you please describe for me what you're noticing in your body right now? And uh, then what occurs at that point is that I am not going to interpret that experience. I'm not going to ask the client to interpret that experience or create a kind of meaning narrative at that point. In fact, one of the things that in the work that I've developed, which is called the moving cycle, is a principle that's called postponing interpretation. So what What you do is you settle into the body in the present moment, even if there's some goal or story or event that you want to work on, you begin by locating yourself in the present moment, describing your present moment experience, and then stepping into it, really engaging it. And so one of the things that might happen is they might say, my jaw is tight, and I would say, Uh, I might ask them to describe that experience. Is it more on the left or the right? Is it a hot quality, etc.? Just descriptors. But then what I might do is to say, 
that's it. Stay with that. Just engage with that, with your jaw, exactly the way it is. And this is what Ryan was saying a little bit ago, that you really hold the somatic experience in uh, a very um, uh, clear environment of attention. So the attention actually cares for the experience and holds it and allows it to then emerge under its own terms. So we're not using our conceptual mind to create a kind of a box that explains the body. This is sort of one of my favorite gripes about uh, what we do when we uh, talk about our bodies instead of really engage with our bodies. So we postpone that idea that we're, we're a verbal translator for our physical experience and we really encourage the client to immediately engage with that with the experience, let's say, of the tight jaw. And to, for instance, say things like, that's it, just stay with that. What does your jaw want to do right now? How can you breathe to support your jaw in what it wants to do right now? Stay with noticing the sensations. And then uh, what happens is, uh, my feeling is that what gets created there with that very high-quality attention is it thins the barrier between conscious and unconscious processing so that uh, stored material or unconscious material can emerge in a very safe way. So I might then ask the client, um, as you as you really stay with your jaw right there and as you hold and care for that uh, experience in your jaw, do you hear any words? Or do any sounds come up? Any sensations elsewhere in your body? Any emotional states? Any memories? And so we're working with the associative capacity of unconscious processing, or we could also say right brain processing, and bringing up the creative material uh, that ha- is safe to emerge at that point, that is associated to the jaw. And that, that kind of mindfulness holding the jaw in high quality attention and allowing emotions to sequence or uh, images to sequence, movement to sequence, uh, that is about then uh, our capacity to stay associated and not have that very common dissociation that occurs that uh, causes the client suffering in the first place. When they mm. dissociate from the power and the rich uh, material that's arising when they really take good care of that experience in their jaw. So I hope that sort of helps with the clinical. Yeah, it's very beautiful. And I think, uh, you know, not in any way trying to summarize the richness of what you said, but, for instance, the experience of the jaw may be painful and a normal tendency to human beings is go away from the pain, but actually you're holding helping people engage with the experience and in so doing feeling grounded and uh, and the sense that that is thinning the barrier between the conscious and the unconscious from that place in that place of safety and grounding yeah yes. very well put 
I think one of the things that I really like about this work too is is that um, as as we sit and and we're present with the body, the body always tells the truth. So it can often get underneath the rationalizations and distortions that our mind wants to make. I think Ryan was making this point a little bit earlier. But um, it has a way of cutting through the stories that we make about our lives. And um, when when someone actually has quality attention paid on themselves and they start to witness themselves and um, focus in on the sensations and the memories that start to emerge from there, there's there's a way in which that sensation turns to movement and, and it helps sequence through whatever might be um, stuck because of whatever um, belief systems are holding that belief in or that sensation in place or um, you know what whatever uh, uh, trauma is stored in the body in that way. Um, I think that the that as we start to hold the, those sensations and, and work with them, they, they naturally have a movement of their own. And when they do that, we actually can relieve the tension that, that's stored in our body in that way. So that uh, that sensation is actually something that um, um, is a gateway to a movement that has not had completion. Absolutely, well said. Mm-hmm. Yes. In a way, in a way, what I think our the contemplative practice is doing by not going to conceptual frameworks straight away, but supporting the the semantic experience, the somatic experience of it, is that it's it's allowing for the procedural memory to be able to be expressed that, that didn't get expressed earlier instead of jumping to the semantic memory of what it was about and the interpretation of it. It's very supportive that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, how do people get trained? You train people to become practitioners in that. What's the training like? Well, uh, at Naropa we have a three-year program, and uh, in that sense we have uh, a wonderful luxury of being academics uh, because we can teach both theory and practice, ethics, uh, social engagement, and uh, practicum all woven together at the same time. And we also... uh, can teach many different methodologies at the same time. And so uh, one of the things we do in terms of this talking about it not being monolithic and how Ryan talked about uh, how one can actually bring in um, some important resources that have been developed in even verbal methodologies, uh, we really start out with uh, a premise that the student has to really uh, learn to pay high quality attention to their own experience and be a kind of clear channel in their own with their own experience uh, because that's the basis of being able to sort through things like uh, the difference between intuition, therapeutic intuition, and projection, and so. Uh, we can give it a fancier term, calling it countertransference stress, and certainly we can see that as somatic countertransference stress as well as cognitive and emotional. But we really first spend quite a bit of time in helping the student to uncover how to work their own uh, capacity 
both in a freestanding way, in, in other words, we give them practices that they can do on their own, but also in an embedded way so that their capacity to, for instance, oscillate their attention from inside themselves to outside and uh, to a client is a very important aspect of the flow of attention that is... Um, actually the way that attention naturally operates, uh, especially in a system like with two people in it. So we, we begin with and keep that thread going through the whole uh, three years that the student is studying themselves as, at the same time as they are studying uh, a vast array of different um, methods and modalities that can be uh, operationalized through a contemplative lens. And so as you're describing it, is um, uh, that big part of developing that observer capacity and uh, focusing on um, how it would be of use as a psychotherapist in terms of um, uh, observing oneself while observing the client, observing, for instance, the difference between intuition and projection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think in just some some very practical ways in which we bring the contemplative view into our curriculum is we tend to start every class with a period of mindfulness and or just actual meditation practice so that there's a, a transition for even five minutes. Usually it's about five minutes where people will settle and track there are sensations, they will settle even further and track their thought processes and even settle further and just allow things to be as they are without trying to do something about it or get it right or acquire some kind of state of meditative bliss. You know, we're not really even encouraging anything like that. It's just, it's just slow down enough that you can be able to track your own body and mark the transition from one thing to another thing and, and in so doing, cultivate that quality of attentional um, and attentional directionality that supports people in clinical practice. When a session is 50 minutes and they have one kind of energy in the room, can they then shift and see another client, you know, at the top of the next hour and be able to to um, integrate that and, and find a, a new ground? We talk a lot about the, the ground of of practice, of contemplative practice as a resource for therapists to come back to that helps anchor when things start to become dysregulated or unpredictable, that we're not trying to like predict or control or manage things. We're trying to just be able to keep our seat and support whatever is coming up without being knocked off our, our center. So classes begin and usually end with some period of mindfulness or, med- or contemplative practice. We also have it woven into the curriculum in terms of it, their own practices. So not only are they woven into every class, but they're also woven into the curriculum as their own self-standing courses. One is in more of a, a sitting meditation practice and how it relates to body psychotherapy and the body. And the other is more of moving practices. And we really try to um, support people in exploring both because they, they both serve different capacities and they're both important, and it tends to be that people who are more in the 
movement, body-based training programs like the moving practices. And so we encourage that. At the same time, we also want them to, there's something useful and valuable about just sitting still and tracking and observing sensation without always following the impulse, just as there's something useful about being able to follow the impulse and see where it goes without having the conscious mind do some kind of uh, codified or or um, practiced movement that's more of a more of a deliberate action rather than a supportive unconscious process. So that's woven into the curriculum. And then there's just a lot of a lot of high quality um, I'd say almost postmodern assumption testing. You know, who are you? Essentially is the question being asked and who's the who that's answering the question? And where'd that who come from? And is that a solid who or is that a an ever-changing who that's that has a an illusion of solidness but really isn't necessarily solid because it's changing and transitioning all the time and being influenced by experience and the interdependence of really everything that's happening. So there's this other part of the training which is it really tracking that beyond well, who's this I that I keep referring to that I see this and I experience that. And that can be a little mind-blowing for people. It's yeah. not, it's not, it's not really asked. I mean, it can bring up a ton of anxiety and just sort of existential fear. <laughs> so being able to sit with that question and, and the whole state of not knowing can be, um, very useful for therapists to be able to have gone down that, that road a little bit because our clients are going to be coming in with those same, similar types of questions when their life crumbles or their plan seems to be thwarted you know how do we be able to how do, do we know that that quality of of mutability in our own lives that that can then just sort of be with them in that place of not knowing and still have some kind of a ground of of um, practice that supports not falling all the way through the rabbit hole that sounds like a very uh, beautiful way to put it, to staying with it, not knowing and not falling down the rabbit hole. So um, it might be a place where we end up, but I want to just check if there's something that you might want to say to conclude other than that. You know, just going on that existential thing, I, th- I think most People want to be seen, and what's scary about that is the fear of judgment. And I think the more we can sit with our own non-duality um, and and let meditation support that or mindfulness support that, we're able to bring that quality of attention to our clients without our own projections getting in the way. Mm-hmm. I think that I think something that really struck me was something I heard the other day from actually um, a prospective student who came in and was talking about um, her interest in studying at Naropa. And so I'm just going to kind of add my spin on it. So essentially the idea is that our emotional body is so intrinsically tied to past experience. It's so rooted in what the limbic system has gathered as dangerous data. And so it's it's encoded all this in our in our body, so to speak, in our emotions are therefore really about sort of the past in some sense. And our brain, our mind, I'm talking more about our our cortical mind here, is trying to arrange things and fix things and plan and design to avoid that pain or to grasp onto the pleasure. So 
in, in contemplative practice, we, we really see pain and pleasure in similar ways, that, that pain is something we dislike, so we move away, and so we try to go to pleasurable things, but pleasure tends to be fleeting too. And we can spend a lot of time clinging on to things because we're afraid of, of losing them. So the body is what's situated in the middle. The body is situated in that place between the fear of the past and the pain associated with things and the planning and designing around keeping it or avoiding it. And so when we are coming into the body and that contemplative awareness of what's happening in our body, then we can start to shed some of the the character strategies and the armoring and all these things that go on and getting into the direct experience of the moment a lot of times the energy that's tied up in driving and planning and avoiding and clinging can be freed up to really allow more aliveness and joy in the moment even though painful things might be happening or or um, lovely things might be happening we can experience them fully and just experience the joy or experience the sadness without getting into the suffering where those the joy and sadness get amplified um, through the control, the controlling mind of the ego. And that's where I think the, the loveliness of contemplative body psychotherapy practice comes in. Uh, what I would say, too, is that Ryan has just talked so uh, eloquently about this idea of the body being in the middle there. And what I would want to leave with is uh, uh, my thought that we might want to create a new word here, and the new word I would call bodyfulness, that uh, we're really talking about a state of deep, presence and uh, engagement in with the body, in the body, and that the capacity to stay very awake uh, in the body, uh, in the present moment, is uh, in a sense how we might, in through this lens, define health. And so I'm uh, currently trying to champion adding bodyfulness uh, to our uh, dictionary along with mindfulness and heartfulness and thoughtfulness and uh, other fullnesses. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Thanks, uh, Christine, Ryan, and Tara. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.